We're going to be in uh, Proverbs chapter 3 tonight. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs chapter 3. When I was in college, uh, when I went to Cedarville, I was a RA for a couple of years, a resident assistant. And every year to start the year, my dorm would have a, a competition where each hall would compete against the other halls to see which hall was the, the manliest. And we did all the man things like uh, tug of war and truck pulls. There's a lot of screaming, just way too much testosterone in one place. But um, what you would do is the, the dorm, or each hall rather, would dress up. There would be this, this costume theme and you get points for your theme. And most guys wore costumes in the realm of like Braveheart, right? Well, one of the years that I was, <laughs> I was an RA, uh, my guys decided that we wanted to dress up as dads. So even before this was cool, some of you don't remember this, it hasn't always been cool to go thrifting. So before it was cool, we went to the local Goodwill. We got dad jeans from the 90s, dad shirts from the 90s, tucked our shirts in, wore socks with sandals. We put baby powder in our hair. Some of us even walked around with baby dolls in our arms and we just chanted, dads, dads, dads. Um, Look, like at the time, we all thought it was hilarious. Looking back, it's a little creepy. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, if I had to guess, some of you would want to see a picture if I had one. Yes. Okay, I guess I'll show you a picture. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, there we go. So... When I sent this to Brian Niemeyer, he sent me an email back and said, are you the guy dressed up as a baby? It's like, no, that is not me. I am, I'm in front with socks and sandals and my hair's really gray. Thankfully, it's not that gray yet. This was over a decade ago, um, which feels like a long time ago. It makes me feel old. Okay, you can take the picture down now. Thanks, Alex. Dads are famous for a lot of things, aren't they? Dad fashion, dad sense of humor, Dads are famous for the fun ones to go grocery shopping with. We're the ones that come back with the pint of Ben and Jerry's because it was on sale. Dads are the, uh, the expert lawnmowers, the expert grill masters. And, you know, when I was, when I was young, I would make fun of dad jokes. Um, now that I am a dad, oh boy, I get to bless you with dad jokes every week. You're welcome. <laughs> but the truth is, all of us need a dad. We need a dad-like figure in our life who can put his arm around us and say, I'm proud of you, who can sit across the table from us and share that wisdom, that advice when we don't know where to turn. The dad who can, the dad-like figure who can put his arm around us and say, don't worry, it's going to be okay when we find ourselves in the midst of chaos. We need a dad. And I'm going to put my dad hat on tonight. Now, the wisdom that I'm going to share, it's not coming from me. It's coming from Solomon. Because if you're in Proverbs 3, you look at Proverbs 3, verse 1, what does Solomon say? My son or my daughter, don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. Solomon puts on his dad hat. I want you to picture this. It's like the wise sage, King Solomon, takes you out for breakfast. He takes you to the classiest place in town, the Blue Willow. 
and you get the two-egg special. And he sits across from you, and he says, my son, my daughter, I've got some wisdom for you. Five things that I want you to remember to live life in God's world by God's rules. That's our text tonight. And when we receive that kind of wisdom, we have two choices, don't we? We can stiffen our necks and say, no, nah, I'm good. I'm going to live my, my life in my world by my rules. I don't need your wisdom. Or we can humble ourselves and say, no matter where we are in our journey, we all need wisdom. And as I've had the opportunity to study this text over the last number of days and weeks, I'm convinced I need this wisdom just as much as anyone. So I'm excited to learn together uh, what Solomon has for us, a wise dad who has some wisdom for us tonight. I hope that you're ready to learn with me. So let's read the whole text together. I'll read Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says this, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son or my daughter, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For as the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Well, we already talked about verse 1. So let's look at verse two. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. You see what Solomon is saying? If you listen to his wisdom, it's not necessarily going to lead to money. It's not going to lead to wealth. It's not necessarily going to lead to good health and happiness, but it leads to peace. We live in a world of chaos, don't we? And it seems like our world craves turmoil and craves and looks for chaos. I wonder if this is why our world is more chaotic than ever before, because our world doesn't seek after God's wisdom. Do you want peace in your life? And Solomon says, keep listening. We find our first principle in three and four. Let me read that again. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. So you'll find good favor and success in the sight of God and man. Let's pause there. So if we were just reading through Proverbs chapter three and we came across verse three and we read, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, my instant application would be great. I'm gonna love people. I'm gonna be faithful to other people and we're good to go. We'll keep reading. Is that a good application? Yeah, it's a great application. Of course we wanna love people. That's not what the text says. For a good Jew, when they're reading Proverbs three and they see those two words together, it would ring a couple of bells in their mind. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Steadfast love and faithfulness, that's covenant language. If you remember in 
Exodus 34, verse 6. We talked about that text this summer. In God's revelation of himself, he said, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, the Hebrew word hesed, and faithfulness, the Hebrew word emet. Those are the same two words in our text. This is covenant language pointing Solomon's son, Solomon's daughter, pointing you and me back to the nature and character of God. In verse 3, Solomon's reminding us that we need to know who God is. We need to know God's love. We need to know his faithfulness. Long before we think about showing love to others, being faithful to others, we need to know God's love. We need to know God. We need to worship God for who he is. How in the world do we do that? Well, that's the second half of verse three. He says, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Does that sound familiar? Well, for the good Jew, it certainly would have sounded familiar. It would have been an obvious nod back to the book of Deuteronomy. See if this sounds familiar. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This is a clear reference back to the book of Deuteronomy. So in the beginning of verse 3, Solomon's saying, know God, know God's love, worship God for who he is. And how do we do that? We've got to stay connected to his word. We often miss the intimate connection between worship and the word. When was the last time we were reading God's word and it drove us to worship? Where we just <laughs> took a moment or a couple minutes just to glorify and praise God for who he is because of what we discovered in his word. Or do we read and check the box and say, I'm a good Christian today, I read my Bible. There needs to be a connection in our, our hearts, our lives, and our minds between worship and the word. Worship, we define it pretty narrowly often, don't we? Worship in Christianity today is singing. It's what we do for 20 minutes on Sunday morning. Is that how the Bible defines worship? Kind of, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. Think of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Paul's saying, Paul's saying that our worship, ascribing worth and glory to God, is so much more than a song that we sing. It is the way that we live our life. It's an act of obedience. Worship is not something that we say. It's something that we do. It's how we live. And when we get to know God, when we know his steadfast love, when we know his faithfulness, and he begins to transform us from the inside out, that overflows into a lifestyle of worship. So that's our first principle tonight. Learn and live God's love. Learn and live God's love. His love needs to transform the way that we live. It's an interesting promise. Solomon says, when we do, verse four, you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So does this mean that if I worship God, that 
I'm going to climb the corporate ladder and be successful in my job? No, because Proverbs aren't promises. Maybe the best biblical example I can think of, this text would be Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they're taken away to Babylon as these young Jewish exiles, they're the bottom of the totem pole. But when they get to Babylon and they're placed in the king's court and they're studying with all these other young men, they don't compromise what they believe. They don't compromise worship of their creator. They still pursue the Lord with their whole heart. And what happened? They rose the ranks and became the top of the king's court. They didn't compromise their belief. They followed the Lord. And Solomon reminds us that when we live life in God's world by God's rules, people around us, they're going to notice that Solomon's saying there's actually a, a competence. There can even be a respect that comes by putting God first. Does that mean that we're going to climb the corporate ladder, that you're going to have a six-figure salary within the next year by putting God first? No, that's not what he's saying. But we pursue God first, and then we leave the results up to him. So that's our first principle. For our second, let's look at five and six, probably the two most famous verses from the passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Incredible verses. A life verse for many. But I want to make an observation. Often, you and I like to focus on the last part of verse six. God will make straight your path. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Lord, tell me where to go. Tell me what to do. I need guidance. I need direction. I need wisdom. Make straight my path. You've been there before? Maybe you're there tonight. But we forget the three things that come first. <laughs> Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. You read that in the original Hebrew, that word trust, it's not a pretty word. It's uh, lying face down on the floor, like face to the dirt in complete surrender. It's a picture of complete and total dependence. And that's what he says, trust in the Lord, face down on the ground, not with some of your heart, not with most of your heart, but with all your heart. It's a reminder for each of us that we can't save ourselves. The only, thing that, the only thing that we bring to the table of our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. There is nothing that we can do to earn a right relationship with God. And we're born sinners. We're born enemies of God. We can't save ourselves. But then what does it mean to trust in God with our whole heart? Well, it means recognizing Jesus as our Savior and our King, who came and lived and died and rose again in our place. That if we believe in Him, we can have eternal life. That's the best possible news. Trusting in the Lord with our whole heart means throwing up our hands in surrender and saying, Jesus, I believe. I trust you. I follow you. If you haven't made that decision, that is the most important decision of your life. Don't leave tonight without talking to somebody about what it means to follow Jesus with your whole heart. But here's one of the ironies of our Christian life. We capital S surrender the moment we accept Christ as our Savior, but we lowercase s surrender every single day for the rest of our life. I need God just as much today as I did 10 years ago, and so do you. We need to trust in God with our whole heart. 
And then the next line says, lean not on your own understanding. The word lean, it's not leaning back on my chair. Instead, the best picture is a song. And if I start singing it, I bet you'll sing it with me. Ready? Lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. Hey, nice job. You guys sound great. We should have recorded that. That could have been a hit single. Maybe not. That's what the word means. We're leaning on the Lord, not on our own understanding. And that's our second principle tonight is live with a lean. Live with a lean. It doesn't matter if you have your GED or your PhD. You need to lean on the Lord. It doesn't matter if your IQ is 70 or 130. You've got to lean on the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're making minimum wage or you're making six figures. You've got to lean on the Lord. It doesn't matter if you have somebody that comes up to you asking for wisdom every day. We need to lean on the Lord, not our own understanding. And then in all our ways, we acknowledge him. I love that phrase. It's a lot more than making a three-pointer and going like this. Acknowledging the Lord means that we live in this, this state of dependence, saying, Lord, I I need you to show up today. I need you to to grow my heart, to direct my desires, to change my affections, realizing that that we need him moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour. Have you come to a spot in your life where your back was against the wall and you said, I can't do this anymore. This chronic pain, I'm done. This job, I can't deal with it. This toxic relationship, I'm done. Maybe you're even there tonight. That's not a fun spot to be. That spot where we feel like throwing in the towel and, and quitting. You know what our world says, right? Don't quit. Don't be a quitter. Quitters are losers. You've got to be tough. You've got to tough it out. You've got to persevere. Now, I wonder when we get to that spot, when we say, I can't do this on my own anymore, I wonder if that's the place that God wants us to be. When you and I realize, I need Jesus. I need him. And may we live with that daily face-down dependence on the Lord. And then he'll make straight our paths. Don't invert the order. Start with one, two, and three before we look at line four. So that's our second principle. For our third, let's look at the next couple of lines. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Have you ever met someone who is wise in their own eyes? (laughs) Was that ever true in your life? Look back in the mirror and think of a season in your life where definitely thought you knew everything. Yeah, that was me in seventh grade. Part of me would say, I'd like to go back and meet myself with a seventh grader, but I would probably barf. So (laughs) it's not a good place to be. Proverbs 
Solomon says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't have that know-it-all attitude. We all need to have that posture of, I have a lot to learn. I could be wrong. We need the humility to receive wisdom. And if we don't, we run the risk of acting like an arrogant know-it-all junior higher. If we live with humility, willing to learn from anyone at any time, the text tells us that we'll find healing and refreshment. So that's our next principle. Find healing through humility. Find healing through humility. Healing's kind of a dangerous word to use sometimes, so let me clarify. Does healing mean physical healing or spiritual healing? The answer is yes. Let me explain. Last week, if you were following the news, it came out that the principal owner of the Indianapolis Colts had been found unresponsive in his home a month earlier. The media had kept it quiet for a month and then finally it came out. As you can imagine, the owner of the Colts is a very, very wealthy man. He's worth 4.3, not million, billion dollars. And it's no secret over the last number of decades that he's lived life in his world by his rules. A month ago, he was found unresponsive and cyanotic. He was blue in his house. Not sure how he survived, but he did. And what was the cause? Eh, Most think it was probably an opioid overdose. He's had a history of prescription medication addiction. He's been with a lot of different women. He's had run-ins with the law. He's lived life in his world by his rules. And he's young. He's in his 60s, and his health is doing this. He's actually faced a physical consequence from living life in his world by his rules. We sometimes forget that God's way is not just the right way, it's the best way. And that God's wisdom can actually lead to not (laughs) just our best life later, but there's benefits to following him now. And we see that in scripture, it makes sense. The Bible tells us not to get drunk. That's good for your health. Proverbs warns us against the dangers of sexual immorality. We know that can lead to things like STDs. Did you know that Paul actually talks about the value of physical exercise? And some of you got really excited when you heard me say that. That's actually in the Bible. Some of you are a little disappointed right now. Or gluttony. We know the dangers of gluttony. The Bible warns against it. And the list goes on and on, doesn't it? That when we do things God's way, it actually can lead to physical healing because we're avoiding the consequences of living life in my world by my rules. Does that make sense? But even more than that, the healing is spiritual, isn't it? I love what verse 8 says. Verse 7, rather. Don't be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Kind of has that faith and repentance vibe, doesn't it? Knowing our Lord as King, turning away from our old way of life, and then we'll find healing. That was last week, wasn't it? That was last Monday night. That if you came to the baptism service and you heard those 17 testimonies over and over and over again, we heard stories of our brothers and sisters who so courageously shared their stories on stage. They came to this point where they are at the end of themselves. They couldn't do anything else. They they didn't know where to go. They threw their hands up in surrender and said, Jesus, save me. And he worked a miracle in their life. There's no other way to explain it. But it was a miracle. That's this text. So we see that the the healing 
can be both physical and spiritual. Well, let's move on. Let's look at verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Okay, let's pause there. Okay, don't forget what we learned two weeks ago. We talked about how to interpret the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, they're not promises. Proverbs are short, pithy sayings about how to live a wise life, and they're true at least half the time. But what some individuals do, you might even see them preaching on TV. They take a verse like this, and they make it a promise. And then what happens? If you give to my ministry, if you give to my church, if you give to the Lord, then God's going to bless you and he's going to multiply your salary and he's going to grow your investment portfolio. That's not what this text is saying because Proverbs aren't promises. Instead, what's the principle behind the text? God gets first priority. That we practice generosity and then we leave the results up to the Lord. That's what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, God's going to take care of us. But we put him first, and then we leave the results up to him. So that's our next principle, give generously. This proverb, it doesn't guarantee personal prosperity. Instead, it reorients our priorities. So tonight, we get to have a family talk about giving I know this could sound self-serving. It could sound like, okay, give to Highlands. We're going to lock the doors. You're going to get out your wallets. We're not leaving until everyone puts money. And I'm just, I'm kidding. Joseph, thanks for laughing at my joke. I appreciate that. No, I don't, I don't want this to sound self-serving for at least a couple of reasons. Uh, first, our pastors have no idea who gives what at our church. We don't even have access to it. People who count, our counting team, they, they know who gives what. Um, I don't know. So if you're already giving, I have no idea. And if you aren't giving and start giving, I would have no idea. And if you go to another church and you're giving there, certainly I have no idea. So (laughs) second, our church is in an excellent spot financially. God has been very, very gracious to our church. Jeff and our elders have practiced fiscal responsibility for decades. And because of that, the Lord has allowed us to be very generous. If I remember correctly, last budget year, we gave about 25% of our funds away to missions outside the walls of the church. That's pretty rare uh, in, in church ministry. Though Highland has four campuses, we have no liabilities. There's no debt. We're not talking about money tonight, giving tonight, because Highland needs it. Our desire is so much bigger than that. We're talking about giving because we want to live life in God's world by God's rules. And Solomon tells us right in our text, part of that is generosity. And living life in God's world by God's rules changes our perspective on wealth. Because what you and I have in our bank accounts, it's not even ours. It's God's. We're not owners, we're stewards of the things that God has given us, and we get to live not with a closed fist, but with an open palm. Our text says, honor the Lord literally from your wealth. God deserves the best. He gets the first cut. What Proverbs says is the first fruit. 
Now, that first fruit mentality, giving God the, the best, the, the top cut, that, that applies to a lot more than our money, doesn't it? Do we give God the, the first cut of our time? Or do we only serve his church when it's convenient for us? Do we give God the first cut of our energy, of our sleep? Or do we read the Bible and pray only when it's convenient for us? The same thing applies financially, doesn't it? First fruit means that we prioritize generosity and then we discern if we can afford that vacation or car or higher mortgage payment. Now, if you've been around church culture long enough, you've certainly heard the word tithe. Anyone heard that word before? Anyone know what that word actually literally means? That's exactly right, Rebecca. It means 10th. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 14. Abram, he met this mysterious high priest named Melchizedek, and he gave him a 10th of everything that he owned. And then in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob vowed to give God a tithe, a 10th of everything that God would give him in the future. And then In Leviticus 27, the Israelites were actually covenantally obligated to give God a tithe, a tenth of everything that they received. And that tenth was given to the Levites who were responsible for overseeing worship at the temple in the tabernacle. But if you add up all of the different ways that a good Jew was generous, giving back to God with what they had, some scholars estimate it would have been about 25% of everything that they had, more than just the first fruit of the crop, the tithe. Throughout the prophets, like Amos, the Lord accused his people of robbing him by refusing to give their tithes. That's Old Testament. So I know what some of you are thinking. I'm not a Jew. I'm not an Israelite. I'm not bound by the Old Testament, so none of that applies to me. And at least to some extent, you're right. But I have a couple thoughts. I know that surprises you. First, giving to the Lord for the Israelites was not viewed in the same way that you and I pay our mortgage or our water bill. For the Israelite, giving to God their first fruits was an act of worship. It was connected to their their adoration, their love for the Lord. It was connected to their time glorifying Him in the temple. When we give to the Lord, is it mindless or is it an act of worship? It's a big difference there, isn't there? Second, When we think of tithing, uh, a group of people that were really good at tithing, won't surprise you, was the Pharisees. Jesus told them this in Luke 11, uh, verse 42. It says this, But woe to you, Pharisees! You tithe the mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The Pharisees, they served God with their checkbooks, but not with their hearts. And Jesus reminds us our giving is worthless if it doesn't flow out of a love for God and a love for people. But notice Jesus didn't tell the Pharisees, don't tithe. He said, these things you ought to do without neglecting the others. They neglected the big things of loving God and loving people. See, for us, this is why we focus on our first three principles first. I actually think the order makes sense. We do the first things, and then we talk about giving and generosity because our giving overflows from our love for God 
in our love for people. Overflowing in our trust in God's providence. Overflowing out of a humble heart that fears the Lord. And even though you and I aren't bound by the old covenant per se, when we look at the New Testament, what is the the New Testament's attitude on giving and generosity compared to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant? Well, in my opinion, I actually think generosity and giving leveled up in the New Testament rather than going backwards. Let me prove it to you. In Acts 2, 42 to 44, the believers in the early church, they lived together. They had everything in common. They sold their possessions and distributed to any, to all according to need. That didn't have a tithe, a tenth attached to it, did it? That was need-based. Their heart was overflowing with the generous spirit. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. Paul reminds the wealthy in Ephesus to give generously, to be willing to share, but at the same time, by doing good, work, doing good works and being rich in good deeds. He didn't just want them to write a check and forget about it. He wanted them to give financially and with their hearts and with their lives. Those two things need to be connected together. Our love for people should be deeper than just financial. I think Paul makes a strong case for the financial support of the local church in 1 Timothy 5. Even in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul encourages the church in Corinth to set aside money on the first day of the week, every week, which would have been the day that they worship together, to collect an offering over time to send to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So if we leave the theoretical and move into the practical, what in the world does this mean for us? Are we supposed to give a tithe at 10% to our church? And if we do, do we give out of our gross income or do we give out of our post-tax net income? And then do we give the church 10% and anything additional to other missionaries and organizations that's on top of it? Or is all the giving 10%? And when I do give, can I give in the box in the back or can I mindlessly give by donating online. I'm not going to answer any of those questions. They might be really good questions to ask your life group leader tonight and see how the Lord has convicted them. (laughs) You know, I really didn't think that was going to be funny, but I guess it was. So sorry, leaders, just put you on the spot. But instead of policies, I want us together to think of Paul's principle in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. You can write down that reference. I just want to read it for you. Paul writes, Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So what do we do? We have a conversation with the Lord. Say, Lord, what does it look like to be generous? How can I live with an open palm rather than a closed fist? Where do we start? Here's a couple ideas. Start with your local church, whatever church you attend. Consider supporting missionaries. Consider helping benevolent ministries like many in our community that help the down and out in a redemptive and restorative way, not in a handout way. When should you and I start to give? Well, don't wait until you have more money. Now is the time to develop the habit of giving. Now is the time to give God the first fruits, the first cut of that paycheck. I know some of you feel poor right now, and some of you might be. 
but at the same time, you probably have the lowest living expenses that you'll have for the rest of your life. Just wait a couple years till you have kids, things change. Solomon's dad advice for us, it doesn't make generosity optional. If we have income, then God deserves the first cut because it's his in the first place and we're stewards of what he's given. One commentator put it this way, quote, God has made us his investment brokers. We invest 10% as a tithe and he pays us a 90% commission. He's a good boss to work for. That might be a little cheeky, but it is a helpful way of considering the finances that God's entrusted to us. So congratulations, you survived our family talk on money. Let's look at verse 11 in Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves those whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. You know, if you thought principle four was hard, this is worse. Desiring discipline? Are you kidding me? When was the last time that you heard somebody say, yeah, that consequence, yeah, I, I deserve that. It's really reforming me into the person I need to be. Please, I take that on myself, right? When was the last time you heard a teenager look at their parents and say, yeah, please, mom and dad, take away my phone for the next month. I, I, I can see how much you love me and my, my kids at, or my friends at school, none of them are going to think this is weird, right? No, you would never hear that. Or when was the last time you heard somebody say to the police officer, you mean... You want to requisition $300 from my bank account for driving too fast? Go for it. I really needed to learn a lesson and, and driving slower, and I can't think of anything else I'd rather do with that $300 today, right? No, you, you wouldn't say that. But what's humbling is that's the spirit of this text. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. Discipline, not wrath. Discipline, not punishment. But shepherding keeping us on the path that he desires. And that's our final principle, desire discipline. What does that look like? Well, a couple years ago, um, one of our young adults on our Mexico mission trip prayed something kind of crazy, but it stuck with me ever since. He said, Lord, do whatever it takes. That's this principle. Lord, do I need discipline? Do it. Do I need a piece of humble pie? Do it. Do I need some pain? Do I even need that illness? Do it. Do whatever it takes to align my heart with yours. Do whatever it takes to make me fear you and turn away from evil. Do whatever it takes. Because God is not this wrathful, punitive judge who's sitting in heaven waiting to punish. If you know him, he's your father. He wants what's best for you. He desires his glory. So trust him with everything, including discipline in your life. If we don't have his discipline, we're going to wander off that path. We're going to do things that actually hurt ourselves. Trust God enough to ask him to discipline you. And in that way, this text comes full circle, doesn't it? Because if we go back to 3.1, it says, My son, don't forget my teaching. Let not your hearts keep my commandments. This certainly isn't your young adult pastor talking. This isn't even Solomon talking. This is your loving 
heavenly Father who has some wisdom for you and I to live life in his world by his rules. I hope we listen to his wisdom tonight. Let's pray. Father, these, uh, these aren't easy texts. Um, and give us the humility to say that we have a lot to learn. And give us even the humility to invite your discipline, your shepherding, your correction into our hearts and into our life. We trust you. We trust you with everything. And may you be the Lord of all in our hearts and our lives. Even as we dive into our life groups tonight, may you guide our discussion and our time. May we continue to glorify you. Thank you for this family that we get to be part of. In Jesus' name, amen.